0: White supremacy cannot end until white silence does. Be involved. Speak up in your community. Get involved in your city council. Put power to your privilege. Find out where the money and the, and the, and the budget's being spent in your city, and, and, and get involved to put that towards marginalized communities in your city.
1: Hello, friends and damn givers. I'm Nick Lapara, and this is the Let's Give a Damn podcast. This is the show you come to. When you want to hear from and learn from people who are giving a damn and making the world a much better place in so many unique and meaningful ways. Thank you for hitting play. Thank you for showing up this week. And most of all, thank you for joining me and us on this journey toward leaving the planet much better than we found it. Now, this podcast releases on November 8, and that means it's election day. If you listen to this as soon as it releases on the morning of November 8th, then I have one last chance, one last opportunity to beg you, to plead with you, to get out there and vote. Friends, vote for human rights, vote for trans rights, vote for women's rights, vote for the voiceless. Vote for candidates that have plans to slow down our climate crisis, actual plans. Vote for candidates that want our children to know history as it was and not as we wished it was. Vote for candidates that read banned books. You get the idea. Please fucking vote. Most of you, I'm happy to say, will have voted early. That's a good idea because there are usually no lines, and we get it done, and we don't have to stress about it on November 8th. So thank you for doing your part if you did that. Thank you for using your voice to vote. But maybe send a few texts today, maybe a few phone calls to your friends, your family, neighbors, coworkers, to ask them if they're going to vote. And if you're listening to this after November 8, then things obviously went one way or the other. Here's my message. Here's my words of encouragement to all of us. No matter which way the election is going or has gone, keep the faith. I know that's kind of cliche-ish, but it's true. Keep the faith. Stay hopeful. As Dr. King would say, quote, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice, end quote. Keep hoping, keep fighting, keep voting, keep building, keep calling out evil every single day. Keep making little and big decisions that will impact our lives and legacies and each other's lives and legacies. Okay, now that we have that out of the way, moving on. Friends, my guest this week is an amazing human named Russell, a.k.a. Jolly Good Ginger. If you're on TikTok and you give a damn, you've probably come across his daily content that he puts out to his 1.6 million followers. Or maybe you're one of his hundreds of thousands of followers on the other social media platforms. And if you don't know who I'm talking about, your life is about to improve, I think, as you meet and learn from Russell today. His story is fascinating. He was raised a racist and a bigot by two racist and bigoted parents. Through amazing twists of fate during his preteen years, he began to learn more about actual history and his life was changed. He has been on a decades-long journey to get rid of the racism and bigotry he was taught as a child, and now he uses his big voice and big personality to call out fascists, educate white people about white supremacy, and so much more. The internet loves him, and I think you're going to love him too. Before we get into this conversation, a quick reminder, as always, that you can email me at hello at You can ask questions, recommend future guests, tell me how much you love or hate me, tell me how much you love or hate the show, anything really, I just love hearing from you. And now, let's get right into my conversation with the jolly good ginger, let's go. Russell, it's so great to have you on the Let's Give a Damn podcast. Thanks so much for being here. Hey, thanks for having
0: me and uh, glad to be here. We,
1: okay, before, people that are listening won't be able to see this, but I want to begin by addressing the background. Actually, I'll I'll pull a few clips so people will be able to see that. But the background, we've got some flags back there. Uh, We have the uh, LGBTQIA plus flag. We have the Black Lives Matter flag. That's right. What's, What's the one right behind your head?
0: so this is kind of um just a my it's kind of like a a little bit of everything right yeah so it says yeah that, it's the love um, is love we you know immigrants are welcome yeah yeah yep. there you go yep i love that one yeah yeah a little bit of everything. what it is is depending on what protest i'm going to what rally i'm going to i like to have a relevant flag and i would find myself at these kind of obscure rallies sometimes but i still supported what they were doing and so i, would, I bought this flag to kind of have it as my you know. Uh, that's
1: the all around go to one, si-
0: one size fits all. Yeah. <laughs> one size fits all. I love it. Right. I love
1: it. Um, yeah. And your shirt make fake Patriots uncomfortable.
0: Yes, I sir. love it. I love it. I think the message on that's pretty clear. I mean, it's very, um, it's very clear. Right. A lot of people, you know, as a veteran, people always bring up um, patriotism, especially because I'm on the left. They say, Hey, you're not a Patriot. And I like to point out that, you know, anyone who supports fascism or, or the lack of freedom is the opposite of a patriot. So I wear yeah. this shirt and it starts a lot of fun conversations. Yeah.
1: So I am I'm kind of let's let's begin this way. I am on a little bit of a high today, which is good. The last month has been a shit show in our home. I got COVID for the first time three, three and a half weeks ago. I'm immunocompromised, which is why I tried really hard not to get it. I have really bad asthma, stuck around for 12, 13 days with me, still having some breathing issues, but I got a week out of that. And then my wife got it. Um, I won't mention the circumstances. We've, both times we got it, a, a, our, we had family members that came and visited. And they made choices about their vaccination status. Mm-hmm. And you know, we, there's some hesitation around, do, do we let these people come? They're going to fly in a plane unvaccinated and without a mask. And what do we do about that? Anyway, here we are, no matter how we got it. And then so the last month has been really hard. I'm on high today because today is the uh, New York City Marathon Day, which is like a holy day here in New York City. Um, Today, not every day, but today, I believe in humanity. I'm excited to be talking with you today ahead of our midterm elections week, which is promising to be a shit show. Today, I feel really good. I'm excited to get into some stuff with you because right now, I'm... I don't know what it is about a marathon. I don't know if you've ever cheered on people at a marathon. I've run a marathon. You've run a marathon. Well, there you go. You've done one better. There is something so amazing about the New York City Marathon. Happens every year, right about now, which is oddly right before the election. Every two, you know, election day, every two years, twenty-something thousand people run it. Listen, this every five minutes, I'm take my kids. We watch the parade. We're cheering people on. Some people have their name on their bib we yell out their name. You know, there uh, there was a there was a blind runner. He had someone that was holding his hand. He had right. he had, he was blind running a marathon. There was a double amputee that had those <laughs> I, I don't mean to be uh, 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 disrespectful with this, but he had those springy like prosthetics. Yeah, yeah, I don't sure. know, I don't mm-hmm. know what you call them, but those springy prosthetics. Even- uh there were people pushing uh disabled people in wheelchairs. I mean, just humanity at its best, uh, is a marathon. I never knew that. Mm -hmm. I've I've now, uh, two years in a row, cheered people at the New York City Marathon, and it's just absolutely perfect. It's wonderful. And so all that to say, if we had had this conversation last night, different things that I'm dealing with, conversations I'm having on Twitter and Instagram and otherwise, it might have been a different story, but I'm beginning our conversation here with very high hopes of... Maybe not what's going to happen on Tuesday and some of the changes in power that are going to happen in the next few months in our, in our, you know, in our political uh, world anyway, but I'm very bullish on humanity right now. And so, and, and, and again, I'm so glad that we're having this conversation. I will also say here at the beginning, Russell, that I did not prepare for this conversation. Uh, I, I don't do a ton of prep anyway, but I didn't. And here's why. I've been observing your content for the last year or two uh, online, mostly on TikTok, and I know that we have a ton to talk about. And I feel sure. like it's gonna be it's gonna be very, very organic. Um, and so, as soon as my kids went to bed, 30, 40 minutes ago, I scribbled down a couple notes. That's it. We're going into this thing kind of blind, but I'm so excited and honored that you would sort of in a last minute way step in for a conversation that's gonna release on. Election day, November 8, 2022. Again, a week that promises to be a wild one. I'm Um, nervous,
0: right? I'm scared.
1: I mean, before 2016 and then 2020, like I just, yes, okay, my guy, my gal, my politician, they lost. Boo hoo. That sucks. We move on. Right. But now we have, I mean, we have millions of people that, and we'll talk more about this later, but that are promising. Now, they don't even know what the fuck they're talking about when they say this, right? They don't know what it means. When they say civil war, they're just thinking the only, the only, they've seen documentaries and they shoot sure. guns in their backyard. And so that's mm-hmm. the extent of.
0: Well, they th- think that war is like this, this area that you report to at nine o'clock in the morning. We all have war we break for lunch. And then at five, everybody leaves war and goes home. Like that's how they talk about it. Not understanding like war here would be a very super nasty thing. You don't want, like you don't want that, but people know t- it like it's a playful thing. Yeah, they do. They really, really
1: do. They talk right. about it as if it's something to look forward to. They mm-hmm. get off on it. And that's the, the exact the exact opposite of what anyone should feel about war. But like you said, war in another land is a different thing. War in our own backyard where your family, like, and, and you know this, and we'll get into your military background soon. But if if it's a war in another country, you know, you deploy and you go there. And you know that your family back here in the United States is safe. Civil War, all that's gone. You can't go it's to the, the same thing.
0: And- a much different perspective. It's the thing. <laughs> yeah, it's, right. the, it's the same thing. Like what's happening over there is horrible, but then when it's in your backyard, it's still horrible. It's just a whole different perspective. You know what I mean? People don't realize they like, like you're talking about deployment. You know, when when I was in the army, you deploy, you got a time period to coming back as long as you make it through. And then, but in Civil War, I mean, it's war until it's not, and and that's that's frightening. That should frighten anybody. It should no frighten one. It. Yeah, no one should casually toss that around, but you're right, that's, that's what happens now.
1: Yeah. Okay, we're gonna get into some deep stuff, some heavy stuff, some good stuff here in a minute. But before, w- what I realized as I was thinking about this conversation, what I realized is that all most people, you're, you have this, you have this uh, interesting level of fame, right? Most people wouldn't know about who you are, but then you look at the numbers, right? And you look at you know 1.6 million on TikTok and hundreds of thousands on the other platforms. You have your influence uh, permeates all kinds of you know all kinds of uh, areas in our society. But what I noticed, uh, what I, what I thought about, is I was you know just thinking about this conversation was we don't know much about from your content. There's people that like their content is like their life. They share about all the stuff, the ins and the outs, and family and kids. And that's not yours. You're communicating about things that are happening in society, and you're calling people out, and you're trying to work through these big ideas. But I don't, we don't know much about your life so as little or as much as you want to get into it i would love what i do know is that you grew up in um a very progressive household full of <laughs> inclusive and progressive ideas no the exact opposite and so yeah, that yeah. that we that we do know but i don't know what the implications of that are so go back as far as you want and give us the yeah the beginnings of russell's life and how really fundamentally that shaped and formed you
0: yeah sure um i guess the readers Digest version. Um, I, mean, I was raised in Western North Carolina um, it's called Crowder's Mountain. It really shouldn't even be called a mountain. That's a hill. But, you know, it's right, right next to King's Mountain, right outside Asheville and the mountains over there. And so, uh, you know, over in the mountains, it's a it's a, sp- a specific culture, right? You're in rural America. You're right in the mountains, living in the holler. And, you know, it's predominantly a white area. You know, you, onesies and twosies are not white. But pretty much everybody's white. And Confederate flag in every yard, Confederate flag on every T-shirt, bumper sticker on every car, South or rising, in, South or rising, in, South or rising. In. You know, raised in that environment. Um, when my mom and dad was three years old, they they divorced. So, um, in a in a in a strange twist of I guess fate, my dad very overtly racist. Obviously, my mom's racist, or she wouldn't have been married to my dad to have me. But you know they divorced and she married to a black man. She remarried to a black man, which, you know, so, you know, my mom began her deconstruction process from her own racism, which is great. But, um, being that that happened in the eighties and I was three years old, the judge wasn't going to give my white mother custody of her white child when she's with a black man. So my dad actually ended up being awarded custody of. And so after that, I didn't see my mother anymore. So I just lived with my dad. Um, he ended up remarrying when I was five. He remarried to a woman who had two kids of her own already. And then um, my dad and that woman had another child together. Um, so that's my two step brothers and my half-sister. And um, my dad, or my dad's second wife, uh, we didn't get along very well. She didn't like me too much. So she treated me like a red-headed stepchild, you know, proverbially. And you and, are. And, yeah, and yeah, yeah, Right, <laughs> exactly. So, um, and my dad worked a lot. that dad was gone a lot. So, I mean, I had to sort of... I had a rough childhood. We were, we lived in abject poverty, we were a very poor family. Um, and she treated me really bad. And my dad, he was pretty abusive and, uh, I learned to be a racist. I mean, I learned to be a white supremacist. Overt racism was, um, I, I like to tell people racism is so casual where I come from that it's culture. Mm. Um, you know, it's, it's hidden in plain sight. There's things. I didn't realize the N word was a racist word. You know, we were told down South there's a difference between a black person N word, Right. And, you know, that, that in and of itself is a, a super bigoted concept, but you hear it so much in the South that I didn't think that was racist. I thought that was some logical conclusion, you know? But then when I was 10 years old, my mom, uh, went to court to fight for visitation rights. And the court awarded her visitation rights. And I didn't want to see her. You know, my dad had told me that, uh, her marriage to her second husband was, uh, you know, not, not real because mm-hmm. God doesn't believe in that. So in the Bible, it says there's interracial marriages, you know, um, uh, sin before God. So their marriage wasn't real. And so therefore the three children she had at that time were bastards. That's what I was told. Of course, I believed that one, but not, I believed anything that does. Right. Um, so I didn't want to see my mom, but she came and got me on a Saturday and she took me to a museum. You know, sort of a neutral territory. Not, let's not go straight to my house. I haven't seen you in seven years. You don't even remember me, so let's get to know each other. But my goal was different than her goal. My goal during that first visitation was to make sure she never comes and sees me again. I wanted nothing to do with her. And um, and I was a pretty foul-mouthed uh, 10-year-old. So, I would, you know, I was basically calling her an N-word lover. Uh, I was calling her children inwards words to her face, you know, as, as a 10-year-old. and She would ask me questions, and I would tell her to, you know, shut the F up. You know, I don't want to talk to you, blah, blah, blah. And the entire however long visit was two hours, three hours. went that way. It was not productive. We didn't have any conversation, mostly because I refused to have it. And I was saying some pretty foul stuff. To her credit, she kept a real cool head about her. She knows I'm a product of my father, right, because she knew my father before I knew my father. Um, And so she kept a cool head about her. You know, she would say stuff to me like, you know, you really should talk like that. It's not good for a child or whatever, but she kept it cool about it. But I got home and told my dad. I said, well, she'll never come see me again. I promise. Dad was like, oh, I'm proud of me." Then uh, two weeks later, she showed back up and it just blew my mind. I was like, oh, my gosh, she really came back. Yeah. And that visitation, she took me to um, her house. Now, she lived in an all-black neighborhood and I live on the mountain, you know, and it's an all-white neighborhood. And I knew what happened in black neighborhoods because everybody, right? Crime and violence, you know what I mean? And I knew as a white man a white kid, if I went into a black neighborhood, I would get beat up. Everybody knew that. It was common sense, right? So then we're driving into this black neighborhood. And I'm like, oh, my God, what is her problem bringing me? So I even told her. I said, I don't want to be here around all these N-words, right? And she was like, well, you need to watch your mouth because we're about to go visit. You're going to meet your brothers and sisters. And I said, those ain't my brothers and sisters because – you know, you're married to this guy's not even, you know, san- uh, sanctioned by God. So anyway, so this is the conversation we're having. I go inside. She goes into my brothers and sisters. Which I I think, you know, yes, three. So they, were, they would have been seven, six, and five, or maybe six, five, and four. And I was 10. So, yeah, six, five, and four. So they come out, and they're just happy to see me. My mom has told them about me their whole life, but they've never met me. And so I'm their big brother in their eyes, right? So my dad's told me that these are bastard children from an evil, godless marriage. And their mom has told them, this is your big brother, and he's a wonderful guy, right? So we have very different perceptions of each other. So when they came out and they're like, hey, brother, I am so glad to meet you. Look at my Ninja Turtle, that kind of stuff. I couldn't. I wanted to be mean to them because that was my goal. But I couldn't. Mm. I was physically incapable of they, they were too nice. They were too excited to see me. See, I come from a home. Like my my home life with my dad and, and, and his second wife was a loveless home. You know, abuse abuse was common. My dad was an alcoholic, um, extremely abusive. Uh, CPS took me out of my home twice prior to the age of 10. Um, you know, the only reason my dad got me back is it was the 80s. You know, had that happen now. I probably would have never. Been You'd be gone. Ridden. Yeah, yeah. I had bruises from my neck to my calf. That isn't a wow. sob story. That's just it's not a sob story. It's just that that was home life. And we didn't say I love you. We didn't give each other hugs. That just didn't happen in our home at any point ever. You know, the only emotion I even knew how to express was anger. Right? I wasn't I wasn't versed in expressing any other emotion. I kept those trapped inside. So now I'm in front of these kids who are my brothers and sisters, who are really very loving and open. I don't recognize that emotion. I don't, I don't connect with that. So I sat there almost frozen. So the good side of that, the silver lining is I wasn't mean like I wanted to be, right? The bad side of that is I was incapable of reciprocating to them, you know, any kind of love. I didn't know how to show that. But I did deep down inside feel grateful that somebody was happy to see me. I never in 10 years of my life, I'd never been happy to be seen, right? I didn't understand that. So that I thought that was kind of weird. So deep and down inside, I liked visiting them. So then it started where she would come pick me up and I would be happy to go over there. I wouldn't tell her that or let nobody else know that, but I knew that. Because they were always happy to see me. And this was a totally different emotion I've never experienced in my home. So it was unique. So anyway, as my relationship grew with my brothers and sisters, I would meet the people, other people in the neighborhood, the other kids in the neighborhood that they play basketball with and play, you know, play kid stuff with. And everybody was so nice and it just was the entire opposite of what i was told was happening in black neighborhoods right right so at a very young age i'm probably 11 12 i'm at this philosophical crossroads more you know better suited for a 30 year old in which do i believe what's right in front of my eyes or do i believe what i've been told my whole life right that that was the crossroads and uh, you know on a, in, a, in a philosophical conversation i believe all white people come to that crossroads eventually um, but again that's the conversation for probably another time but that's where I was at and as a 12 year old I made the, the best decision I said I got to believe what I see right? and so I decided to explore this I decided I want to look into it, I want to know more but I can't talk to my dad about it that's not a conversation that's even possible and I just met my mom I've known her a couple of years, we're not that close you know I'm still a kid working through emotions we don't have any kind of relationship like that so I can't talk to her about it either so what do I do you know I'd do it on my own. Start reading books. Mm. Start um, going to the library at school. You know what I mean? Asking people. Um, there, was a, there was an old guy over that lived in my mom's neighborhood. An old black guy. And he was just like, every time he spoke, I was enthralled. Like, it was just, he would speak wisdom. And it was like, you see the guy sitting there, you know, it's it, it, he's just sitting on his porch. You don't think he's got much to say, man. The guy's, he's just a great orator. So I'd go ask him questions at 12. And he just would, just tell me things I never heard before. Mm. And I remember um, going through this process of just learning things I never heard and things the school don't teach and the real history of America type stuff. And, and the, the, the the more I read, the more I'm intrigued. Like what, you know? So wait a minute, you know, George Washington didn't have wooden teeth. Those were teeth right. that he did. He, he put out of the mouths of enslaved people. Mm. Wow. And, and then I started seeing, I see why they changed that. In books, Right. Like, That wouldn't go over as well, that George Washington used to pull the teeth out of enslaved people to use as his dentures, right? It was better to write that in as wooden teeth. It's a much more fun story, right? So, you know, and then just one thing after another, you start learning that it's a giant cover-up. And it was was almost like, you know, what teenager wouldn't be interested in discovering the great American cover-up? Like It was amazing to me. On top of this journey to deconstruct my racism, I'm uncovering this conspiracy. And then I remember I was 15 years old. And to, when I tell this story, I've told this story a lot. And people, when I first tell it, they're going to say, that's it. That's the climax of this story. But, but follow me to the end. So Malcolm X was giving an interview on TV. And I was watching this on a VHS tape that I had got from the library. And the, the interviewer was asking Malcolm... You know what's your last name? It's not X. We know it's not X. What was your last name? Malcolm says, I don't know. I don't have a last name. My my family's name was taken from me. I was assigned the name of the slave master. That's not my name. It's your name. So I changed. So that's why it says X because I don't know my last name. Wow. And and the interviewer keeps pressing him, keeps pressing him, keeps pressing him in in various ways to get Malcolm to say his last name. And of course it's, it's the ulterior motive of the interviewer is an attempt to belittle Malcolm's philosophy. But Malcolm doesn't cave. Malcolm sticks it out. I don't have a last name. Stop asking. There's no other way to say it. But what fascinated me, now to, to, to a lot of folks, it might not have stood out to them the way it stood out to me. But that that day, I remember sitting there watching that video because it blew my mind. And here's why. From the time I was knee high to a grasshopper, right, to the time I was a kid, I've been told, uphold your family name don't bring dishonor to your family name my dad told me son i'm not rich i'm not this I'm not i just but i'm doing better than my dad and i just hope that you do better than me. wow that's all we can do is make mm-hmm. sure our children do better than us and that's the best we can do and we make sure the family name lives on this is what i'm told so in my world family name is everything and it, and that's true across white america okay we have debates about whether we, The woman should take the man's name or hyphenate names, have these silly debates. Why? Because in white America, family name is everything. Right. Um, If you go, if you trace it back to Europe, that's how kings were passed down. That's how heirs to the throne. Family name, family name, family name. So that intergenerational culture had been passed down to us here in white America, all the way down to me and this poor white boy in in, in the mountains of North Carolina. I knew family name was everything. It was ingrained in my DNA to family name. Mm. In fact, I have my family name tattooed on my chest. And so for me to hear at 15 years old, this man say he didn't have a family name, that we stole their family name. It all like, it's like everything started connecting. Oh my God. Like we took their family name and to some, if you don't understand white culture, if you don't understand, not that white people have a culture, but if you don't understand European culture, if you don't understand these different cultures, then you don't really understand why white people took the names of the African slaves or assigned their names to them, because that's how you strip somebody of their identity, right? If you're the heir to the throne and I take your name, you're not the heir to the throne anymore, right? And so there was purpose to this. There was It was systematic. We stripped this entire uh, community of people of their name, which was huge, of their culture, of their traditions, of their religions, of their language, and that is literally was the 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 pin, the lynch pin that made my house of cards fall. Mm. That was the day until then I was on this curious journey to better understand what was happening that wasn't being told to me. I was on this curious journey of what was racing me. I was on this curious journey of personal identity. And, and I was curious, and curiosity was driving me to read and study. But that is the day I got pissed off. And I've been pissed since then. Been pissed for 25 years. I got mad. I became angry. There's no way to cut this, there's no way to explain it away. There's no cognitive dissonance or mental gymnastics that can be done. My people did that. Why people love to say, well, I didn't. And that's not even the conversation. Right. And 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 the fact that I witnessed in real time at school this truth not be told. I witness in real time at my home, this truth not be told. I witness in real time the people that I see practicing overt racism go out into the community and swear they're not racist. It happens even now to this day. Mm -hmm. And I was witnessing in real time once, because once you see it, you cannot see it. I was witnessing in real time, everybody I knew, everybody I loved, everybody I cared about, my entire existence, everybody in it was part of a giant cover-up of white supremacy and it pissed me off. And so I just began this mission to kind of educate myself as much as I can and then um, educate my community as much as I can. I don't feel like there's enough people that holds the white community accountable. White supremacy began in the white community. It must end in the white community. And the white silence that exists within my community is what allows to perpetuate. And so my goal is to end white silence. White silence, um, until white silence ends, white supremacy cannot. And That's what I've been doing for the last 25 years
1: there's so much to unpack there. We don't have enough time. Um, but thank you for sharing that. Thank you for sharing that, uh, a fascinating and painful story. Really? The, not just the, you know, we could talk, we could go that we could go the route of talking about the abuse that you experienced verbally, emotionally, physically, all that we could go a bunch of different directions. The part that hit me, that makes me most sad, but I'm sure I don't want you to regret it. And I'm sure you don't regret it because it made you who you are today. But the, the most, Painful part of that story you just shared was that at 12 years old, at 12 years old, you're just a kid. You can't talk to your mom about this journey you're going through. You can't talk to your dad about this. You have to go on this journey as a child. That part. To unravel everything you know about your world. Your whole entire world is about to, like... Again, that that should happen to all of us. It it it, it must happen to all of us, uh, no matter what c- our background is. But as a twelve-year-old, uh, that must have been that must have been a wild thing to go through. I mean, most guys are, you know, m- most guys are looking for their, you know, they're going through their first crushes and they're looking for their first kiss and you know the the junior high dance is coming up and like it's it's. I'm not saying there's not hard stuff in your average white kid, you know, white kid's life at twelve, but. Right. It's a lot. It feels a lot lighter than what you were going through, you know, having to wrestle through this. And so, I'm sorry. Not that again. Not that you regret it, and not that I want you to regret it, because you wouldn't be who you are today without that. Sure. I can still look at 12 year old Russell and be like, "Damn it, like that sucks to have it, to go I mean, through that."
0: Truth, truth be told, like all those things you talk about—the first crush, the dance, this, that—we're doing that too, right? Mm. And, and the, the, the learning sure. process, yeah, and, and the learning process was slow. And I would keep the things I find to myself because, you know, and so it was a real slow, slow learning process. And I went through also the, the process of doubting. Right. You know, and I would I, I started believing. And then I went through times where I was like, maybe I got the whole thing wrong. And maybe sure. I was right. Like, sure. It's, just, it's this big mental struggle. But, yeah, you're right. At 12 years old, it really did suck. And there was times I felt really, really alone. And, it, and you know, all teenagers go through an identity crisis, I, I believe, um, to some level or not, you know, and I went through that identity crisis. Uh, I rejected everything that was white out of pure anger. Um, then I felt started feeling like, man, I f- uh, I'm looking like a f- poser now. I got to reject and, and be over white so I don't like a poser. And then like <laughs> it's this roller coaster of emotions. But nobody really knew why I was going through it because it just wasn't something I could talk to anybody about. You know, and and, and, and yeah, it was frustrating. Y-
1: your your mom. So one of the things I want to address in here, both, you know, from things that I've heard you talk about is this idea of, uh, uh, uh allowing people to evolve, right? We're all, <clears throat> we're all fairly fucked up in our own way and we all must evolve. And there's a difference between accountability and canceling all that stuff. We're going to get to that. But with your mom's story in particular, what, what stuck out to me was within a couple of years, I think you said she went from being married to a racist as a racist to marrying a black guy. Do you have any insight? Maybe you do at this point in your life. Do you have any insight into how that happened? That's fairly, for someone to, she's an adult. I don't know what age she is at this point, but she's an adult. She has, she has a five, six-year-old kid, you and and other kids. And so she's a full-grown adult, adult, fully developed. And she's a racist, married to a racist. All of her, you know, her worldview is racist. And so for that, for that to happen, how, how did that happen?
0: Right. So to help you, this will help you understand a little bit better. Um, my mom was 16 when I was born. Um, and I she's believe, a baby. wow, yeah, literally, and I believe she had been with my dad since she was fourteen or fifteen, and my dad was five years her senior, so he was twenty-one when I was born. Um, like nineteen, when they got together. Um, you know, that's that in itself is problematic. I believe, yes. but whatever. Um, so you know, it's fairly it's it's much easier to understand when you understand the context of she's an impressionable teenager. Right, and then comes from a place, she comes from the mountains over there where racism runs rapid, and she just kind of um, had her own epiphany. You know what I mean? I, 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 I've talked to my mom about that, but not to that degree, um, and that's because she's you know, she keeps to herself whatever she wants to keep to herself, but the long and short is, you know, once you see racism, you know, as you're growing up, she sees it from my dad and everybody uh, from the inside, like how racist people can be, and my mom's got some stories she can tell you about so things my dad didn't, you know, um, very racist. And it left a bad taste in her mouth. She this ain't right, you know what I mean. So she kind of went on her own journey to figure it out. And through that journey, fell in love with the mother, you know what I mean? And um I thank God she did, you know. So, you know, my dad was abusive to her, my dad was abusive to her second wife. So, you know, she got away and she found herself and she went on that personal journey, and you know, um, I think she came out the better for it. You know, I've known my mom since. When I was 10, and that that whole story just told you, she had visitations for a couple of years. After a couple of years, the visitations stopped. And I don't, it's a long story, why but they stopped. And then when I was 14, I, on my own cognizance, started visiting her house on a regular basis. And since 14 till now, we've had a continual daily relationship. So we have a very good relationship now. And I will tell you, I mean, um, she also speaks out against racism and, and acknowledges it the way I acknowledge it. And, you know, so I can attribute a lot of my growth to her.
1: Amazing. Amazing. Okay. So you you mentioned for the last 25 years, you have been uh, speaking out about white silence and fighting racism. What's the short version of what that looks like? Because I want to get to, I have some specific things I want to talk about but I want to give people context for those that are meeting you for the first time, this platform, this online platform that you built and why people are attracted to your voice. Like, what are you talking about? So what are those 20 that obviously wasn't all the 25 years, wasn't on social media, social media nope. is relatively <laughs> new. So right. what did those 25 years look like? And then we'll talk about sort of the online stuff and how that came about.
0: I'll be honest. I didn't find my, my voice to speak out like publicly, like about these issues. So I was probably mid-20s. Mm. Um, so there's a lot of time in there that includes me on this journey. You know, not that I'm not on the journey. Anymore. Everybody's on the journey forever. But there's these years of me just trying to find myself, um, going through identity crisis, going through the struggle. And 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 once I left home, you know, and I got out in the real world, man, And because I, I joined the Army. I joined the Army just to get the hell away from home. You know, the military purposely and, uh, recruits in, uh, you know, very impoverished areas. We were really poor, so we were a high recruit area. And so, yeah, this guy's telling me, hey, you want to get out of college in North Carolina? Yeah. Get the hell away from these people? For More than anything. Let's go. All right. And I literally signed up over the weekend. I was ready to go. Fuck it. Let's get out of here. And so, <clears throat> you know, I joined the Army, and I'm a good old boy from North Carolina, and you think people tell me now, oh, I can hear your Southern accent. Now, you you should have heard my Southern accent when I was 18. It was North Carolina. Thick. To a, to a T, right. It was super thick. And I talked fast. Um, part of the reason I talk so slow and controlled now is years of trying to slow myself down. But I talked fast and had a really thick drop. So people couldn't even understand me. You know, my drill sergeant at basic I had this other guy from Tennessee who was required to walk everywhere I went and translate from. Right. He had, wow. Yeah. Tell just what I was saying. Cause I just talked so country. Uh, but anyway, I just want to get to have, a, and then I started meeting other people and I wasn't ready for that. I didn't understand. There was so many different worldviews. Right. I just found out there was a second one to mine, just found that out in the last four or five years. Now all of a sudden there's just so many more. And, uh, I was still a homophobe. had no idea that I was a homophobe. So I went through these years of, you know, oh. Um, struggling with my own homophobia uh, at the time I was 18, 19, 20. At the time, the the, con- the national conversation was, uh, should we legalize gay marriage? It was a huge conversation that was being had. Um, and, you know, I was openly against gay marriage because I was raised in, you know, the Bible Belt. I was raised in Pentecostal church, you know, fire and brimstone. Sunday, Wednesday, in youth group on Saturday, buddy. I could go to church and, and, and God be- is you know, going to condemn all homosexuals to hell. We know that. It's a fact. So how I couldn't support that. But what the problem was, was I was super ironic about the time that conversation was happening. I was in Monterey, California at the language school. That's where the military language was. And that's just the heart of, you know, liberal country. And I wasn't ready. And so I would say things, super homophobic things, like, hey, man, you know, you can be gay, but two things, don't be gay around me. And you can't get married. You just can't do that. You don't need to get married. And I really think that these are okay things to say out in public and that I'm right, expecting right. other people to say, yeah, I see what you mean. Because back in my bubble in North Carolina, that's what people would say. But then people were like, oh, okay, so you're a homophobe. What? No, I'm not. Yeah, you are. You're a bigot. What? And, like, what? and I didn't get defensive and we're arguing and fighting. And thank God it happened, you know, but um, I don't even believe in God, but, you know, thank the spaghetti monster it happened. But, uh. Because people calling me for what it was and giving me no slack and holding my feet to the fire made me see my homophobia. And uh, I'll tell you a funny story. You know, my family, I've been speaking out against my family's use of the N-word, my family being racist, since I was probably 15. And I wasn't like, don't get me wrong, I wasn't walking around like, hey, yeah, I wasn't like this, like I am now. I didn't have the voice then that I have now. Right, right, right. I would voice to my family my concern and be told to shut up, so shut up. But, you know, um, but my family saw me as going through a phase. It's a phase. But when I told my family that I had changed my stance on gay marriage and I was going to support the rights of gay people to get married, my family almost cut me off then. I tell people this all the time, that my family saw my anti-racism as a phase. Spoiler alert, the phase never ended. And they saw my pro-gay marriage stance as like the end of me. Like it's the point of my return. He'll never come back now. But anyway... So I went through that phase, and not phase, but I went through that struggle of learning how I, I went through a lot of years of just unpacking myself. Then I went to Iraq, army sent me to Iraq, and see war, and it's going to change it forever. And between deployments overseas and, and other countries and coming back, I really started seeing my country for what it was and seeing everything for what it was. And it was like, I'm certain. Start- I'm really starting to see this fog just pull away from my eyes. And as I got older, and, and I didn't, I didn't go to my first protest. Like I didn't go to a march with a sign uh, until what year was that? 2011, right? Twelve. Decade. Was, yeah, yeah, a yeah, decade yeah, ago. 2000, yeah, 2012, actually. I apologize. And, you know, but as soon as I went, I felt the energy. I'm like, these are the people I want to be around. Mm. these are people that and and, and the cool part about it was these are people that can answer questions I've had, because i've been on this journey at this time 2012 i've been on this journey for i don't know like do the math whatever 12 17 19 years i don't know and i still had so many answers or questions because it was like every time i turned the corner i found a new thing about me that sucked i'm a homophobe that sucks i'm islamophobe too god I'm, i'm a horrible person so it's like, I, I can't, I didn't, I didn't stand up and be that much of an advocate or an activist then because every time I turned around, I sucked more. So like, you know, but when I went to my first protest, I'm like, why did I wait to do this? Like, I should have been doing this the whole time because now I get to be around people. You get to become part of the community. People can ask you questions. And I love it. So from there, and I was still in the army, so I couldn't go as much as I wanted, but I would go. And I would, when I would find out about things, I would take part of them or I would go on campaigns and register people to vote and stuff. And I started getting into community activism slowly. Slowly walk myself into it, but when I got out of the army, uh, I had a full time job for a few years. But after a few years of a full time job, I realized, man, I gotta, I gotta give in to my calling. You know, like, I'm supposed to be in the streets making a difference. Um, and so I had a full time job for like four or, five jo- four or five years doing that. But when the pandemic happened, I just took that as like, you know, I have been doing this stuff part time. If there was a rally, I'd go. You know, whatever, I would do yep. it. Yep. I was always if you were around me, I would always call you out like I was very vocal in my in my you know circle. Um, but the pandemic just gave me an excuse to just get jump into it full time and do what I've been doing at that point for seven, eight years but do it full time. And so that's what I've been doing. I, I started you know traveling to rallies however I can, hop a ride, catch a boat whatever we can do, get to a rally, um raise money once it blew up on social media. That, that was highly unexpected to go viral on social media. And so, yeah, that's what I've done the last couple of years, and um, I'm just grateful for the opportunity to, to to spread my message, have the platform I have, and to be able to be part of a community to make change.
1: So let's talk about that was that was beautiful, and uh, yeah, there's definitely a just a, yeah, a really interesting progression happening here in your life, and, and 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 you're not alone in being in this group of people that when the pandemic hit. I kind of categorize a few different, you know, there's people that fall into a few different categories and none of them are bad, but there's people that like played it safe, right. And just like stuck to their nine to five and like tried to hold on to that and didn't do anything, you know, just, and, and obviously people lost their jobs and it was a shit show and it was, you know, it it was a very terrible couple of years and we're still in the pandemic, obviously slowly inching out of it. But then there were people like you and many other creators uh, on social media and otherwise people like me. That just said, no. This is an opportunity. This is when, uh, again, not pitting winners against losers, but this is when winners like rise to the top and say, no, okay, the world sucks right now. That's terrible. How can I help? Right? Really have that like Mr. Rogers like show up. How can I help? What can I do? There's obviously needs right now, and that's evidenced the the way that your voice connects with people. And I want to ask you about your your take on your voice, right? Because there's lots of voices out there. There's sure. lots of people trying to make content, lots of people trying to make a difference. You have 1.6 million on TikTok, a couple hundred thousand on Instagram, 40,000 on Twitter, 90,000 Facebook. That's almost a couple million people sure. that on a regular basis are hearing your voice and even many more, right? That's, those are the followers, but people see your videos and maybe don't <sighs> follow, but they, they right. see your content. I didn't even look at how many like likes and views you have on sure. your TikTok, but I'm sure it's in the hundreds and hundreds of millions. What is it about your voice in particular? What are you What are you excited about when it comes to your voice? How, wh- what it, 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 What do you see people light up about when you're communicating about a hard thing, a light thing, a funny thing, a really terrible thing, right? There's pe- There's reasons why people come back to your shit to like get their not news, but like oh, this thing happened. Here's what we're gonna do about it. Here's how we respond. Here's my take on it. You oh, know, it's interesting. What, what's What's your take on your voice and why? In the midst of so many voices trying to make a living and trying to build their platform on on, online yours has grown to this size and it's stated that you know a lot of people are losing followers they're getting canceled they're getting this like yours is consistently from what i can see grown and grown and grown and grown
0: i think i mean it's an interesting conversation that i like having because what you just said the pandemic happened and people did a lot of stuff well during the pandemic as we know um we watched george floyd be murdered live on tv and that got a lot of people involved in the movement, especially because nobody had a job at the time. So really a lot of people involved. Um, and I remember when it happened, and I remember a lot of people put the little black fist on their Facebook and it said, I am an anti-racist, a bunch of white people. And I told my wife at the time, I said, two weeks. Two weeks, stop, these white folks out, right? Yep. <laughs> because I had been on this personal journey now at that time, what, 20 years, right? And... This wasn't a new conversation, right? What's funny about it is even back in 2013, 14, I would host Facebook Lives and I would have 12 listeners, 12. Right? These are people I know personally. And the same things that I talk about now, I was talking about then, right? Because I've been doing this for a really long time. And I just I didn't have a platform before, but but these are things I'm passionate about. And I have these conversations within with, with people from various different communities. The, the army offered me the opportunity to have these conversations with different people and get different, and, and have different sounding boards and, and, and find out I'm wrong about stuff and find out that how to better refine my message because that's a good point kind of thing. So when 2020 happened and we saw George Floyd get murdered on TV, there's a lot of people that joined the conversation of anti-racism, which is wonderful. But the problem is, especially when it comes to white, people, I'm talking about white people specifically, White people are used to being the center of attention. White people are used to being, you know, uh, they got it. So white people think, oh, I've recognized racism. So now my voice is super important. Now let me talk a lot rather than shut up and listen a lot. People don't realize, a lot of white people don't realize, there's too much to learn, man. It's it's such, it's such a long journey of education, such a long journey to get it all. And white people, and especially because of social media, they consume a lot. In one year, you can consume a lot on social media and become really knowledgeable on these subjects. Stuff that took me six, seven years to, to consume back before the internet, because um, I got to read a book. <laughs> but anyway, um, a lot of white people became social media smart on the topic, and so what you see, you saw a bunch of you saw a bunch of white people kind of grow some decent followings. Why? It's a white world, right? Black people say the same thing for thirty years. Nobody listens. One white person jumps on social media and says it on a video. It's two million views, right? So, you know, that's the that's the benefit of being white. And so, a bunch of white people grew. Then what happened? Now their voice has a platform, and they keep talking. And we find out, hold up, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. And, oh, wait a minute, that's bigotry. You can't do that. You know, that's why you right. said a lot of people got canceled. Right. You, you said it yourself. A lot of people grew and then got canceled. That's why, because they got social media smart within a few six months to a year on social media. Um, and I believe, and this is not from an egotistical point of view. It's just I truly believe it from a just a introspective or, or just an analytical point of view. Um, my voice carries harder and hits harder because behind it is a whole lot of work. I didn't start this 100%. journey in twenty twenty, right? I didn't I didn't start this journey in twenty. I wasn't having these conversations when twenty twenty started. I was having this conversation when I was fifteen. I've literally since then. I've been having these open conversations within the black community, within the Hispanic community, within any, any community that i mean, within the LGBTQI plus community, any community that would allow me the grace to be in their presence and allow me to ask questions. They don't owe me their emotional labor. They don't owe me the answers to my questions that would allow me to ask questions. I would ask them. So I've been having this conversation for a long time. And I think part of the reason you don't see me get canceled is in that regard, I don't make missteps, right? Because thankfully I made all those missteps before people started recording them, you know what I mean? and uh and trust me i've been to all of them and i tell white people all the time i tell white people this all the time dude yeah i get it the same thing that i'm calling you out on messing up right now i messed up dude. i did it just wasn't recorded on social media i didn't have 300,000 followers right uh, but you do so it kind of sucks so now you know whatever but i think what makes my voice unique is three things number one the perspective of having come from the mountains and i really truly understand the rural um, white Christian perspective that's so anxious to be oppressed. I understand that perspective. Number two, I grow my brain out on purpose because when you see me, you expect a message. So when the message is my message, there's a collision of neurons in your sure. brain that says sure. this don't make sense. And so it sticks and it sticks good. Uh, and then number three, the work that I put into to learning this knowledge, to have these conversations, I'm well-versed on them. Um, Not because I'm some super smart, awesome guy. Just the work I put into to to learn the the, the knowledge or to learn the topics and speak on. Yeah, I'm. I'm so glad. I figured you would go there, and I'm so glad you brought up the the
1: the. Hey, I've lived this my my whole. This is my whole life. Right. Like I grew up as a child, as a prepubescent child, I was saying the n word every single day. Like this Mm -hmm. is. And so yes, you have done the work, and so many of the people that I've seen try to build a following, try to build a platform. You know, it's this middle class white kid who, in twenty twenty when George Floyd was brutally lynched on TV in front of us and they decided to speak up, they didn't even have a black friend. They've never had a black friend. They've never had a brown friend. They're they, It's all white people doing white people things, right? They yeah. live in whatever suburb doing whatever things, sure. So there's no substance. So again, they can say a few catchy things. They can memorize a my Angelou quote. They can memorize a James Baldwin quote, but then the substance stops, you know, six tweets in, four Instagram videos and in, seven TikToks in, and then right. it's, it's no substance. So they, that's when they start fucking up, right? Like they say yep. something, they have, these, they, they have these racist faux pas. They, and so, yes, there's very clearly when you look at when, when I open a TikTok and you're there, not, you, you look, you, you also look like you've been through it, you know, not in a bad way. You're good no, looking, you're, sure right about it, you're yeah, good but... looking dude, but like, you just look like you've been through it. Like True. there's, there's a life there. There's a story to tell. Um, here's what I'm, here's what I'm wondering, uh, what's your process. So you've got this big platform. We just talked about like, you haven't been canceled. I don't think you will. Cause again, it's, this is coming from, but what's your process for figuring, deciding what to speak up about, what to post about, who to respond to, right? Because there's, hundreds if not thousands of comments in every one of your videos there are you could literally from sun up till sundown record videos about all the things happening in that day whether it's elon musk you know doing Bye. his shit over on twitter or this school shooting or the or that shooting that happened last night in philadelphia nine people dead or you know a- any number of things that you could make videos about and you could respond to that's not even counting all of the you know, the, 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 the police missteps, uh, sure. they're more than missteps, but you know, the, the, the police brutality and all the things, right. There's so much to post about. Do you have a process or is it, Oh, that's the one I need to speak up
0: about. It's, it's a super interesting question. You asked that and a lot of people don't really think about it. And so I'm glad you asked it because it's something that I think about. And I think a lot of large content creators do. I, I went through this whole process. I blew up on social media unexpectedly. I never in a million years expected to blow up on social media. Um, I made a video and I posted it on TikTok because I heard that TikTok had one minute videos and the video made it one minute. Literally, right. that's why I did it. Yep. And then the next day on Twitter, I don't even have a Twitter at the time, it, it's got 22 million views. And somebody sending me a screenshot. Yo, did you know your videos on Twitter? What? On TikTok, overnight, 100,000 plus views. By the end of the day, 6 million. By the end of the month, I got 100,000 followers. So I went from not even using social media because I didn't really believe in it to having a hundred thousand followers and figuring out what the hell do I do now? Yeah. So I, I had to learn a process because at first, you know, I'm a headstrong guy. And again, these are conversations I love to have. And now all of a sudden there are 3000 comments. wanting to have conversations that I want to have. How do I pick which one? I want to pick them all. And then you know, I went through the process of overposting because I want to answer them all, and I found out that the algorithm punishes that. And so my whole theory is, I'm not going to put the time effort into making a video, and then the algorithm punishes that video and never gets seen because if nobody's seeing it, what's the use of posting it? So uh, you know, you got to post now. You know, three times a day is a lot. So, but I limit myself to no more than three times a day. So I got three. I got three things to pick. I got to post something, and then. But then, as you get bigger, and once you get closer to a million, and once even once you hit that million mark then you can't even really post three times a day. One time a day is good and two maybe. Because what happens is you end up getting 100,000, 200,000 views per video. And when that video is popping off like that, the next video is not even seen. So again, you're doing And then as my platform grew, I got better. Let me tell you something. Technical stuff, technology, that shit, my brain doesn't work. Like I'm an intelligent guy, I speak multiple languages. I have a high IQ. You know, I'm a pretty intelligent guy, I argue. But if you put, like, a computer in front of me and something's wrong, I'm screwed. Like, I I don't know. I think because I ran away from it for so many years, my brain just never, it isn't processed. So video editing, simple stuff, I was I knew nothing about it. But now I do. Now I've I've learned. And so now I like to make better quality videos. Now I like to make um, uh, a smoother message. Like, if I watch my video and I see a little dead spot, I cut that out. Like, things I never thought about before. Yeah. So now one three-minute video has taken me 15 to 30 minutes to make. Wow. Sometimes yeah. a little bit more depending. And so you really got to be selective about what I post because I'm not going to spend 30 minutes making a video. that's never going to seen, right? And so the process I came up with was this. Um, if it's something that when I hear about it needs a call to action, that's number one in my book. Like mm. what can we do to do something yep. to, to make a difference? Can we email the DA's office? Can we call the police? Can we call the school? What's the call to action? so when people, and I get, don't get me wrong, I get things from people all the time that call to action is involved. But what I do first is I see, is this already trending? All right, I got limited posts. So if somebody with a really large platform is already posting it, there's no reason for me to post it, right? And that's that. I think that's the difference between me and a lot of people. I, I see things, if I post something that somebody else is already posting is already getting attention, then I'm just using somebody else's trauma for my views at that point. Because... I think a lot of people don't realize that. Like how much more can I amplify? It's amplified, right? So I'd rather amplify things that are not amplified rather than just, you know, a trauma form, right? Um, and, and so that's my first thing. And then if I don't have anything that has a call to action, then my second thing is what can be used as a teachable moment. Um, and, I, and I don't, I don't want to do a run-of-the-mill video. I don't want to do a run-of-the-mill teachable moment because, again, I'm not going to make a video nobody's going to watch. So if you're scrolling and my first eight seconds of my video it looks like the first eight seconds of anybody else's video talking about the same topic, nobody's gonna to watch it. So I like to change it. So then I sit down and I get creative. Okay, so this is the topic I want to talk about, maybe because something happened in the uh, news, Elon Musk or, or something like that, or whatever the news is. I might not talk necessarily about that topic, but the the, the conversation surrounding it kind of gives me a narrative that I wanna that I want to play off of for a teachable moment. And so I look for something. I'll literally look for something that can help me tell the story. Or if none of, if I can't find either one of those two things, then my last thing that I go to just for some content is I'll, I, I have plenty of videos on standby of people saying ignorant things that I can use to uh, as a teachable moment. Because I'll be honest with you, nothing teaches better than me responding directly to somebody saying it on a video. Now I do it in a kind of insulting way. I have my own way of doing it. It's kind of comical. I do it on purpose, um, and but you know what? It gets the message across good, and those videos do very well. Which, again, people when I say videos do well, people think, "Oh, you're doing it for views." If you're not making videos for views, why are you making videos? Like that's not a flex.
1: Yeah,
0: it's not a flex to say I don't right. do it for the views. I don't do it for the views. I don't. I mean, to be frank with you, I don't. Like the views are not like making my ego go up but I'm not going to put my time, effort and energy into making a video that I don't expect to get viewed. That's stupid. Um, so yeah, that's kind of my process for it. Like I try to stay away from petty, useless stuff. Um, like you're right. You're actually hundred percent. I don't post about my life. I don't keep you updated on my life. Occasionally I talk about things in my life, but only if there's pertinence to my platform. Um, I don't do brand deals. I've been offered a lot of them. I turn them all down. Um, I use my platform purely for education or activism, nothing else. Um, and so I just try to stay on message.
1: Let's something you said tied with the, the, the kind of the, the third section of our conversation, um, which is, I want to, I want to get into the nitty gritty of the nitty gritty of how can we hope for people to change? How do we let people change? And how do we do it? Like how do, the most important one being, how do we do it? Right. Because there's, there are all kinds of conversations about, and I think most of them have merit. Like I listen to a lot of these people that, you know, I have friends at uh, a great organization. I'm actually, I'm actually going to interview the CEO of starts with us very soon okay. um, starts with us was you know, and the whole idea is you know, bringing people together, having these unified conversations, come around the table, have a meal, have a couple beers, and let's talk about these big things, right? In a very, you know, walls down, you know, non-confrontational sort of way. I think there's merit to that, right? But I also don't think that's the only way. And so there's all these conversations. How do we do it? How do we reach across the aisle, reach across to our neighbor that is batshit crazy, but I think they're redeemable, right? How do we do that? And so something you just said you said you know a lot of times when you're doing these you know duets, right, or these responses where you're talking. Somebody says something stupid, right? Whether it's whether it's about a politician or uh, in a, a cultural event, and you respond to them in an in insulting. You used insulting and comical sort of way. You've also talked about. I heard you on an interview that I randomly found on on uh, that I randomly came across on YouTube, where you're sure. talking about um, how you, how people, how people convinced you, how you got changed. Right. And, you know, basically you said like, it was, it it was a no holds barred. Like they, they told me like it was, I didn't want to be coddled. I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to be in a comfortable chair kind of leaning back. And then they give it to me super softly. Like, Hey, Russell, you're a bigot. You're a racist. You're a homophobe. You're a transphobe. Right. And so this direct approach, right? So, tying your experience, how you have how you were changed with your content today. Um, okay, before, before I give you time to respond, I want to bring in one more angle that I just thought about. So uh, last week on the podcast, I had uh, amazing uh, author and speaker, Anand Girdardas, who wrote Winners Take All, one of my favorite books from a few years ago, and just released uh, The Persuaders. And the whole idea is, how do we survive democracy and how do we persuade people? And I think people, when they first see that title, again, they're thinking it's another starts with us or another braver angel sort of thing where it's like, come together, kumbaya, let's figure this thing out. Right. And, 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 and Anand made it clear in our conversation. He said, I am not, this is not lovey dovey. I'm not interested in having nicer conversations. I think anger is, I think anger is fine. I even think division is fine. What he pointed out, and I'd love to get your take on this mixed with the last question I asked you, which is he says, what I'm writing about is contempt and dismissal. Contempt, of course, uh, 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 feeling like a person or a thing is worthless, beneath consideration, right? That's the definition of, of contempt. So there's a, diff- there's a difference between me saying, you're a fucking homophobe. Stop. <laughs> Change your ways. Versus, and I can still think that someone is redeemable and worthy and a good person. Like, you're a good person. Stop being this way in parts of your life versus thinking, which I fall into sometimes. And, and Anand in his book and in our conversation pointed out, this is the death of a nation. He talked about how marriage counselors will say, anger is fine in a marriage. Fights, they're fine Bingo. in a marriage. Like, like, fight away. But the moment you, you have, your, the moment your partner is held in contempt, marriage is over. Like, you, this person is worthless to you now. Just, do, like, divorce them. It is over. You no longer cherish this person enough to even fight for them, enough to be angry with them. Okay, so all of that to say, how do we, how, what's your approach? How do you think through being insulting at times, being angry? You are not passive. You and me alike. Like I get so much shit from the people that are like, let's have good, you know, calm conversations because I have no problem calling people exactly what I think that they are. And I will usually, you know, kind of like hug that video or whatever in, Hey, but like, I, I, I want to help. I think we can make it past this, but right now you're being a fucking idiot. Um, how do we do that in your mind? How do we do the anger? Anger is fine. Division is even fine. But not contempt. Like, because I think contempt yeah, is always, when we yeah. say, why, why are we even a nation? If I don't think that all of those Trump supporters that, Ali uh, Alexander, who's the, one of the, one of the founders of the, 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 uh, stop the steal, right? Yes. He said in a video recently, um, he actually, you know what, I'm going to let you talk right after this, but I'm going to pull this video up. I'm going to play it into my phone yep. or I'm going to play it into the mic. So, so you can hear how insane this sounds like these people are these people are beyond insane and and what my question is what i'm processing doing what i love your take on is how do i believe that Ali alexander is a goddamn fool but not irredeemable and i don't want to see them as worthless here's the clip here's what i would say to to um to joe biden any election i don't like is stolen Any election where you get 81 million tabulations, not votes, is stolen. It's pretty simple. If I don't like it, it's stolen. If I like it, it's not stolen. If you win, it's stolen. Essentially, he says, if I don't like the results of an election, it's stolen. That's a fact. 81 million tabulations, not votes. That's not real. Even though his guy got like a few million less. So 70, whatever it was that Trump got, that's fine. But 81, impossible. (laughs) Okay, I'll turn it over to you now. As you look at your content, as you think about your content, as you think about how to like convince people, move people toward uh, uh the light, sure. How do we do the anger division thing? That's fine. Get mad at foolishness, get mad at injustice, but don't strip them of their humanity. Believe that they're redeemable. So
0: honestly, to give the answer appropriately and correctly. I would need a 10 part series on your podcast, right? Right. So to we'll come back. We'll, to le-
1: we'll at least do, we'll at least do a part two at some point, maybe yeah, right. 10, who
0: knows. But, but I say that honestly, just joking, but the fact is it's really long answer. Right. But so to, to say it concisely and do it justice, I'm going to do my best. Um, there's, there's several, there's different facets. So I say this all the time. If we're going to, if we're going to, if we're going to hold white America accountable, which we must, if we're going to, uh, and white supremacy in white America, which we must, it's going to be a multifaceted approach, right? So there's different facets to it. There's the holding just people in our community account. It could be anybody, it could be your coworker, it could be your family, whatever, just holding people. And then there is like the white politicians, the white leaders, the people that I hear that make things worse. Then there's the whole, how do we hold them accountable? And then there is the, what do we do about the crisis? What do we do about the crisis? Right. just radically on the front side. So there's multiple conversations there. So, let me kind of cover all that, um, first to the video clip you played, right. Um, he says, you know, Hey, if, um, if you won, then the election was stolen. There, there's a very deep conversation that has to be had. Uh, I did a Ted talk on this topic actually. So you can go to the, uh, if anybody wants to go to the link tree in my bio, you can watch the Ted talk. Um, but so you get more detail that way, but long and short in my Ted talk, I talk about how ever since I was a kid, um, conspiracy theories of war against white America um, were passed around, and that's true. I mean, ever since I was a kid, I would hear, you know, the government's against us. The government's, um, I I was told, Martin Luther King Day um, used to be President's Day, but what happened was um, the N-words, you know, they just want to take, 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 take. So these schools just canceled President's Day and made it their leader. Now, the implication of that language is that presidents are my leader, and you know, Martin Luther King is their leader. Right. And where I'm from, but because of that story, because of that belief, Martin Luther King Day is called Inward Day. Okay. That's just how they refer to it. So somebody says, oh, it's Beep Day, you know, it's it's mm-hmm. birthday. And so, you know, these ideas of the government taking things from white America, silence in the white voice, attacking the church, blah, 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 these things have been around forever. I've been listening to them forever. So, let me make an interesting analogy for you. There is um, a bunch of North Korean agents that live in South Korea, okay? They ever so slowly sneak their way across the border, and they live amongst the population of South Korea. You would never know the difference because they're trained in South Korean dialect, they're trained in South Korean lifestyle, and they're what's called sleeper agents. They just go there and they just live amongst the populace, right? The goal is that when war, if war ever were to break out, then North Korea would give the signal, the word, the key word that would activate these sleeper agents and they would turn into, you know, um, you know, um, attacking the population, whatever their mission is, right? They would become terrorists inside the country, right? And so it's called second front lines. Anyway, why that's important. That's how I view white America. Mm. So white America has been fed from the church, from school textbooks, from the community, from home, we've been fed these conspiracies, these ideas of war against white America, and so we just kind of go through life believing this. We don't act on it. Nothing's happening. We're not acting on it. We just know, yeah, you're right, that's happening. Yeah, mm-hmm. we just know it. But then the signal comes, and all the sleeper agents get activated, and that's what Donald Trump did, right? Donald Trump said, "Hey, this is a shithole country," right? Hey, Donald Trump said, "Hey, this is my African American," right? Donald Trump said, "The immigrants, okay? Nothing poor people hate more than other poor people." So, Donald Trump said language that activated the sleeper agents. To at face value, this is where we've done a disservice: is taking the words of these politicians at face value. Mm. Let me tell you how white leaders work. I understand white America better than white America I understand white America. I know racist white people better than racist white people know themselves. He's talking about a stolen election but what he's really talking about is that war against white America you've heard about since you were a kid. Hey guys, this is it. Yep. That's what they hear. That's what white America hears. Oh man, it's happening. I've been hearing about it forever. And now this guy is brave enough to stand up and call it out for what it is until recently. This was the underbelly of white America. Now it's the top shiny coat, right? The sleeper agents have been activated through key and designated language anytime you hear this language this is an appeal to already existing ideologies in the white community so how do we defeat that we have to exterminate these ideologies germany did a great job post-world war ii of eradicating nazism they did it like what the word you just used uh from your friend's book they did it violently and angrily okay now in this case they probably did it with contempt but that, and they as they should but that's, that's a perfect example of how to eradicate. You understand that after the Civil War, I have tell everybody this, the Civil War ended, but the Civil War War's never ended. We're in a cold Civil War, been there since 1865. In the early 20th century, the Daughters of the Confederacy was, was uh, founded and the Daughters of the Confederacy um, erected those Confederate statues that we're all fighting about, right? Yep. They uh, rewrote school textbooks. They don't say the Civil War, it says the War of Northern Aggression. Yep. And it was uh, the you know the lost cause, and it was states' rights, not slavery. That's the daughters of the Confederacy created all those arguments that we hear now. They're the ones who resurrected the Confederate flag. Right? There was it was a systematic approach, very meticulously done, of how the South maintained their cause um, post Civil War. It's a cold war. It's, it's it fits every definition of a cold war. We've been in a cold war with the South mm. since the Civil War ended problem is only one side was actually taken seriously. It wasn't us. It was was the side that lost. And so, you know, these things have been going on for a long, long time. Until we eradicate the Confederate flag, the same way the Germans eradicated the the Nazi symbol, until we eradicate language from textbooks and eradicate language from public spheres of influence that allude to those same types of ideologies that's been espoused since the end of the Civil War, until we do that, it'll continue. Until we do that, there's a place for Marjorie Taylor Green and Lauren Berber and Donald Trump. There's a place for it because every white American is a sleeper agent waiting for the signal. And all these guys have to do it. And And there was a time period in white America where people kind of wanted to do that, but what? Mm. sure, can we do it? And Trump was like, hey, what, you can do it. It works. And then Trump set it off. Hey, it does work. You know what I mean? And so... I mean, people get surprised that so many white folk could believe the QAnon, right? People, I can't, oh my God. I hear people, I I have people on my platform tell me, you know, my mom, I love her to death. And I've never thought that she thought this way. And now she's like, I've literally lost my mom to Q. Like I've lost her. I can't even talk to her anymore. She's gone. People don't realize that's because all of these ideas were subliminally in her head from a child. Yep. Yep. They were activated. That takes your brain over. It's not a far leap to believe things. If if your mom and daddy told it when you was 10, it's not a far leap. So number one, that's what we do there. Number two, for just the average everyday white person and getting people to understand white silence, you're right. It's, I, I firmly believe that all emotions are healthy. And I firmly believe that these conversations must be had through all emotions. And I also believe that they should be done in confrontation. Let me tell you why. Going back to the, the Cold Civil War I was just talking about, the reason the Cold Civil War has been allowed to go on, the reason that the Daughters of the Confederacy and these ideologies were created and have been passed down has been the passive acceptance, the coddling of it. The idea that I can't tell you that you're a racist without also telling you, man, you're a good person and everything else about you is right, good and right, I love right, you. Right, 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 right. That idea has proven, right? So I'm, I'm a scientific guy. The, that idea has been proven to not work. Let me tell you something. If racism would end by us being nice to racists, it would be over. It'd be over a long, 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 long time ago. Correct. So the existence so how, how can I prove that that doesn't work? The existence of racism in 2022. So that doesn't work, okay? Um, I do believe it can't be done, it shouldn't be done in such a way where you're just like just ad hominem attacking people. There's no, there's no, there's no nothing positive from ad hominem attacks. I do approach people as hopefully they'll get through to them, but I approach them in this way. Let me explain my, my methodology. I approach you and A generally insulting, aggressive way, not caring if you get it or not. That's the big thing. I'm not trying to get through to you because if I have to try to get through to you, I'm not going to, Mm. right? I view racism the same way as I view addiction to drugs, okay? If I force you to go to rehab, you're going to relapse. That's why interventions work. I need you to agree to go. I need you to want to go. I need you to want the treatment or the treatment's no good. And so that's how I approach everybody. I view a certain number of white people as a lost cause. And I don't care about it. I'm sorry. Some of those lost causes are in my own family. It is what it is. I look at my, my message and I look at the aggressive nature in which I deliver it as a water filter. If it didn't make it through the filter, I don't want to drink it anyway. Mm. Okay. So I'm going to throw it out my net. <sighs> hey, racist white people. Hey, white people, get over it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk the way I talk, and the ones that come back, we'll have a conversation. Yeah, it's not really pleasant when you're a bigot. Yeah. I'm gonna call you a bigot, right? I'm gonna call you for is maybe we maybe you get mad and never talk to me again. Okay, cool. That's what happened to me too. I, I didn't believe I was a homophobe. I didn't believe it. it took me two years of getting, being called a homophobe and people aggressively like you're a bigot before I was like, damn, I'm a bigot. So, like you said, it worked for me. And it's easy to say, well, what works for you doesn't work for everybody else. Yeah, that's cool. It's easy to say that, but I've also been doing it for a long time. And I'm telling you, that's the only way to get through the bigots. As soon as you provide a safe space for a bigot, then all they're going to do is find a way to compromise their views. I'm sorry, a compromise between their views and your views that allows their views to live because growth is uncomfortable and people don't like to be uncomfortable. If the status quo works for you, how would I challenge it? So when you coddle people, you're not, you think you're giving them a compliment. No, 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 you're giving them an excuse. You're giving them their way out, right? Because it's a, racism and bigotry is a complicated topic that requires education. The vast majority of people are not educated on it. And that's people of, you know, all people are just generally not educated on it. Um, and so you've got to educate yourself on it. And so when people talk about it, they view it as a, not as a character trait, but as a defining character, and that's the problem, right? You, we have to understand that people can be good people, but have implicit biases and stereotypes and, and um, different you know, um, beliefs built into them that have to be deconstructed. We can understand that without coddling the bigotry. So, so those two things have to be uh, simultaneously true, right? This is a, probably a good person who's loving, and for the most part, most people are good people but they also have racist beliefs and ideologies that are dangerous. Quite frankly, I'm not going to say these are not dangerous ideologies. So now i waited waiting on, to the very end to say this on purpose. Mm-hmm. When I say all that, when I say we have to exterminate the ideologies from, from our, from our um, community to get rid of these politicians that use the dog whistles to get voted, when I say that, We have to educate our people. I believe every white person's job is to educate other white people. Nobody gets a free pass. Agreed. You can't say it's not my job to educate you. I'm not, you know, you're not worth my time. Sorry, it is our job. It's no other community's job but ours. So when I say all that, and along the way I say some people aren't gonna make it, when I say that I throw my message out and I don't care if you get it or not, you can come or not come, it sounds like, well, you're not really trying to reach across the aisle. You're right. because listen, that's not who I'm trying to save trying to save everybody else the white supremacy is murdering. This is a human crisis. This is a humanitarian crisis, a human rights crisis. While we're while we're dilly-dallying over whose feelings might be hurt, while we're over here arguing about who what, the best way to come across people's white fragile feelings to not hurt their film of racism, while we're deciding the best way to deliver the message, in the meantime, in between time, people are dying. People are dying because 22% of black America lives in poverty. That's literally one out of almost every four people live in poverty. Only 9% of white America lives in poverty. That means all the effects of poverty, all the health problems that come with poverty, all the financial problems that come with poverty, the educational problems that come with poverty, all of those problems that come with poverty, the black communities experiencing those problems at a rate 2.4 times higher than white people. So while I'm busy trying to explain to white people that this is a reality that we created, those people are suffering from poverty and dying.
1: People are fucking me, dying.
0: It's correct. It's too urgent for me to figure out the best way to make you feel good about it. If I walk up on a house that's burning down and my requirement to pick up the water hose is that you tell me I'm a nice person, then I never was a nice person. I'm a shithead. If I'm gonna watch people burn to death in the building because I won't pick up the water hose because you didn't give me a compliment, that's where we are. My, my thing is, I hear people say, well, I, I, I believe in Black Lives Matter, but not the organization. Then you don't know what you're talking about because Black Lives Matter is a humanitarian crisis. This is black mothers dying at a rate four times higher than white mothers during during childbirth. This is the United States Sentencing Commission uh, found that 19 percent, or I'm sorry, the black offenders survey 19 percent longer sentence than white offenders that have committed the same crime with similar criminal background. That black people in America are 2.5 times more likely to live in environmental justice neighborhood despite income. And this list goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on. So This is proof positive that there's a humanitarian crisis happening in our country. Black people are 2.87 times more likely to be killed by the cops during traffic stop. That if if, if the police initiate the traffic stop, by the way, a black and brown person is three times more likely to experience force or use of force. And if you're wondering how often the police initiate the traffic stop, it's 67% of the time. So, what does all this mean? This means that in real time, no joke, no bullshit, in real time, people are dying. And and not not just dying right away. Like we often talk about the ones the police shot. There's a lot of people the police shot and didn't kill. There's a lot of people that they didn't shoot, but they terrorized. There's a lot of children that are traumatized for life from the reaction, interaction with the police, because our policing system in America sucks. So not just those who die, but those who are traumatized, those who are stuck in abject poverty. Abject poverty ultimately always leads to death. So that's happening as a result of white supremacy. I am not going to find a nice way to coddle your feelings while I while I tell you that this shit's happening. So if you say to me, I believe in Black Lives Matter, but I don't believe in organization, then you're a fucking liar. And yes, when it comes to these topics, I do cuss, because Fran Hampton said, profane times call profane language. So 100%. you're a fucking liar. And if you understand what Black Lives Matter is, if you understand the humanitarian crisis, which is the black and brown community, suffering... Of no fault of their own, but the, the systems that has been created in this country, and you're doing nothing to fix it because an organization might have embezzled money, you're a piece of shit. Period. And and, and I have no problem saying that. And if you and if my if what I say makes you dig deeper in, you were never open to the conversation to begin with, right? So it's like a water filter. I don't want the water go into the filter. And what I believe is this approach is necessary. I believe more people are going to take this approach. I believe more people are taking this approach. I believe that social media has had influence on that. And, I, and I'm very proud that I believe my presence in social media has had an influence on that. The, a lot of people looked at me as the white guy on social media who knows what he's talking about. So as much as I didn't like the fame that can you talk about earlier, the fame that came with, me, did I go everywhere? People with my selfie, everybody knows. I'm always surprised how many people know me. I'm like, mm. just this guy who just happened to have a social media, but man, everybody knows me where I go. And I, so I see that I have this influence and I'm very careful how I use it because I think it's very important to do it right. And, um, yeah I, i'm very proud that i think i've contributed to how we're approaching white people but i think until we have to approach them this way and we'll start seeing change and what's going to happen is enough people are going to change there's no longer a safe haven for those ones who don't change and that the community is going to reject them and it's going to be good on board to get the hell out right this is how germany defeated Nazism. so i'm okay with this approach and and i think it's possible i and, and to your other point yeah there are some irredeemables i don't give a fuck. i i'm more worried about the people dying
1: the stakes couldn't be higher, Russell. Right? You've point you've pointed this out multiple times, but every single day. And I, and again, I still think there's. Let's have the conversations about the best approaches. I want to learn. I want to continue learning and refining who I am and how I communicate. Absolutely. But every single day that we sit around a table and figure out how to communicate better with people, and I'm not saying it's not that's not worth doing. But every day we hesitate and hold back and don't preach and yell and scream and kind of sound the alarm more and more people are dying this is not a game these are not these are not theoreticals we're dealing in these are right. real people real women real men real boys real girls all black all brown that 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 these things are happening to each and every day at the parade today i talked about not the parade the marathon today right I go horse every time I go to the, the marathon because I just yell, and like I said, fifty percent of the people have their name on their bib. They want you to yell their name, and they were we were at the we were two two blocks from my house was the 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 the, the, the marathon route, and so we're over there, um, and it's the twenty mile mark. So people are, I heard I heard a marathoner say like the first twenty miles is like strategy and like you're all your training and the last six miles is heart it's like fucking heart it's like just just st- stay, stay with it and, you, and you're a marathon you've run a marathon right yeah. so so yeah. these people are at that point where they're going to switch to like i'm totally exhausted i can't make it i've got six miles to go what am i going to yeah. do right. so i'm forced i'm yelling and i've got three kids uh two, two girls and a boy uh 10 nine and eight and the, the, the middle uh, one, Bell, she says, I'm, I'm like yelling. I'm like, they have their name on their bib. Like, yell their name, right? He's like, oh, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. And so I'm yelling and yelling and yelling. And then she tried it once. She Some, some guy runs by. She yells the name on his bib. N- nothing happened. Nothing bad happened, in other words. Like, nobody, right. like, stared at her weird. Nobody right. was like, what are right. you doing? That's weird, little girl. No, she right. just, like, yelled the name. And the guy looked and, like, pointed at her. And then she kept doing it and trying it out. Different people. And all of a sudden she's like saying it. And and then my oldest daughter and Belle, they both turned to me at some point. We're like, this is fun. Like my hands are hurting because I'm clapping so much. And I've said so many names. I found so many people that don't want to speak up and speak out because it's awkward. It's weird. What are they going to say? What are they going to do? On the one hand, it doesn't fucking matter because the stakes are so high. On the other hand, who cares, right? My daughter looked at me and said this, and I said, that's the point, babe. Who cares what people think of you? Yell all the names you want. Cheer these people on. They're doing something magnificent. Who cares what anybody else is thinking of you? And I kind of want to like bring that into this conversation as well with these people that are like, oh, but it's my brother, it's my father, it's my aunt, it's my friend at school, it's my coworker. And I'm like, yo, but every day you don't call them out on their bigotry, on their transphobia, on their homophobia, on their racism, it's one more day that they could be out there advertently or inadvertently, consciously or unconsciously, being racist towards someone, sure. being homophobic towards someone, uh, not being the best version of themselves that they can. And so, um, yeah, the stakes are high. That's the, right. that's the.
0: Well, you know, it's, it's, it's the analogy you just used is actually uh, quite fitting if you really. So I like analogies, how I speak. I'm from the South. We don't say anything without saying something else first, right? So I, use, I speak in parables, right? um and you know if we if we if we look at the analogy you just used right the positivity came change came from what saying their name right you you take it to black lives matter that's a big part of the black lives matter movement say her name say his name say their name every rally we go to we say their name it's important to say their name it's important to be loud and be heard Um, if you go to the rallies you'll hear people say i got to be a voice for the voiceless um, and that's a beautiful analogy when you think about it in that context with with your example of the marathon, right? When when your daughters said the name, there was a positive response, which motivated your daughters to do it more. And then and then the positivity built, and then the, the and then the the momentum changed. And that's a good analogy for society. When we're quiet and we ignore the names that are there on the bibs, right? In this case on the t-shirts, because they're they're lost. Yep. And we ignore their names, we don't say their names and we're silent then we as a society don't, don't don't find that collective momentum, that positivity that we're going to need to face the problem and defeat it and find the solution. So that's a good analogy. But even more than that, when you talked about calling out people within our, our family, um, I have no less than, if I'm guessing, maybe 500 or more DMs that I've screenshot and kept of people that have said to me the following, some version of the following. Everybody has their own version, but some version of the following. Your content has made me speak up. Mm. Your content gave me the courage to call my dad out, call mm. my coworker out, call mm. my cousin out, call my mom out, call my dad out, some version of that. And then they say, you know, I've heard so many of the talking points that you bring up and I didn't know how to respond and you've given me the answer. I Not, not only do I know how to respond now, because I know how to respond, I'm more confident to do it. And watching you do it in front of millions of people on social media, and the hate you get because they see the comments and they're calling me every name under the sun. Right? Yeah. You think white supremacists don't like black people? What, what do you find out what they think about white people that don't like them? So you know, they see the comments, and so they're saying, "Man, if you can do this on, on a big platform with all these people and, and all the hate comments you get, I can do it at the dinner table. I can do it at work. And I have hundreds, hundreds, hundreds of DMs. And these are things I just..." When I started the platform, I never saw that coming, but it means the world. To me. Every time I get frustrated with social media and think about just deleting my platform, I remember those DMs, right? Those people. The, the, Malcolm X said, each one, teach one. And so if I'm online teaching and then these people are watching my content and going into their, their white churches and their white homes and their white communities and doing the things I'm instructing them to do, we're making a difference. Change is being made. It's happening right now. And so you're hundred percent right. You know, you had to encourage your daughters, just do it. And they saw dad doing it, but dad ain't scared. I'll try it one time. So this is kind of the same thing. I'm, I'm online just doing it. And that's why I, t- I talk a lot about how social media has this impact of just doing it. I, and I told you a minute ago, I kind of low key became the the, 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 the the white guy, right? All the other white people look up to. That wasn't the role I was trying to assume. It just was thrust in my lap. People that know me actually know I, I hate that aspect of it. If I could be anonymous, I would. The fame part of it, I don't like. I'm not your typical influencer. I don't, I, I, I like to run away from it. But I also realized my wife is the one who said it. She was, baby, you know, like if you want to make the change you want to make, people are going to know your name. Like, there's no way around it. And, and you've got a really powerful voice. Would you want somebody else to do it or you, you want to do it? And she's right. Like, I don't trust somebody else to do it. I think somebody else will fuck it up. So I got to do it. And so this comes along with it. But what I've learned is by, by, by standing in my truth, by not being afraid to say my truth, to say my reality, by not being afraid to acknowledge who I am and where I come from, by not being afraid to acknowledge what my community does now, what my community does in the past, and the harm that my community perpetuates. By allowing myself to acknowledge who I am, where I come from, what my community does, while at the same time trying to change it, I've encouraged other people to do it as well. And that means the world to me. So that to me is what social media for me is about. Yes, organizing, I love organizing and I'll continue to use social media for that. But the most powerful thing that social media has done for me is allow me to give the courage and the information to other white people uh, to become active in their communities. And that right there, man, I never saw that. I never saw that as a reality, but to know that I can now do that means everything.
1: I forget who this quote is from, but every word has consequences, every silence too. True facts. And that's it. That's it is we've got to speak up. It's time to speak up. The stakes are fucking high every day that we don't speak up. People are dying. People are hurt. And it's all, and it's almost always marginalized people. And we must, you know, the voiceless, we must be the voice for the voiceless. Um, this has been amazing. Uh, we have more to talk about maybe another time, but before I let you go, it's 10 o'clock. You have your family to get back to. I do as well. Uh, before I let you go, what's happening in your world? Obviously everyone go follow jolly, good ginger on, uh, all the social medias. Um, the content's great. The content's super helpful as you've got a taste of it here, but what else is, is there anything else happening in your life that you want people to either tease at or this is coming or go find
0: it right now? There's a lot actually um, going on. It just, um, I'm I'm very um, humbled and fortunate for a lot of opportunities that kind of came my way. Um, My social media content, anybody who's a regular follower knows has been less in number as of the last four or five months. Um, A couple months ago, I filmed a show with, with, well, I can't say what network yet. I filmed a show with a network. Amazing. um, It's in post-production, right? It's in post-production now, um, but it will be released here in early 2023. So I'm pretty Excited about that because it's be my first time on national television. It's a big network, you know it. Everybody knows it, so you'll see it when it comes out. Um, I'm writing a book, and a really big publishing company is working me for that. I um, can't talk about that yet, but you know, I'm writing a book. Um, I've been wanting to write one for a while, and this publishing company um, gave me the opportunity to work with me. and So I said, "Well, I guess now's the best time to do it, right?" Uh, and I have another um, TV show that we're working on that just got picked up by a production company. So that's big news. Um, while simultaneously, I'm trying to continue what I do, working with the families of with victims of police brutality. While simultaneously uh, maintaining my social media content, uh, and I'm about to start streaming on Twitch, which I would have started way earlier, but the, the TV show has started happening. So I'm just not getting back around with that. So I got a lot of stuff going on. Um, while also being a full-time dad and a father, I'm sorry, and a husband and a father. Uh, so I got a lot of stuff going on, but that's okay. That's part of the, you know, it's part of the journey. Um, and I guess ultimately my goal in all of this is to use all of this opportunity to amplify my message. My message is simple. Um, small armies can defeat large armies. We've seen it happen. We, we lost Vietnam as much as America doesn't want to admit it. Um, you know, we lost other wars that like can name Iraq. Um, you know, what, we lost them because small armies can de- defeat big, great armies if they just have the um, hearts and minds of the people, if they have the population on their side, if they have a, a safe haven amongst the people. And a lot of people believe that white supremacy, You've talk to white people, they say, oh, yeah, racism exists, but not as much as, as people think. That's the problem. People see white supremacy as a small army. And why are they so powerful? Why do they have so much traction? Because they find safe haven amongst the white community. Mm. Because if you're not actively out there in the streets being a white supremacist, but you provide a safe haven to them, there's no difference, right? People say, I didn't raise my kid. To be- I don't raise my kid to be a racist. Yeah, that's the bare minimum. Do you feed them and call them? So, so I, if you're not raising them to be an anti-racist, then you're, you're part of the problem, right? Do you talk to your kid about what racism looks like? Oh, he's too young. Oh, he's five. He's too young. What about the black kid that's five-year-old and experience racism? Yeah. Right? So yeah. talk to your kid about racism. Tell them it's real. Don't have your kid be the next kid out here arguing with the other kid that's not white because your kid doesn't know about it because you didn't educate him. Not raising our kids to be racist is the bare minimum. Raise them to be anti-racist. I always say raise the change you want to see in the world. So this is my message: White supremacy cannot end until white silence does. Be involved, speak up in your community, get involved in your city council, put power to your privilege. Find out where the money and the and the, and the budget's being spent in your city, and 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 get involved to put that towards marginalized communities in your city. Um, find out, you know, what voters' organizations in your local community to help people get registered to vote. We just talked about election day. It's election day right now. It, this election is, I mean, it's a midterm, but man, it's so important. People, I don't think a lot of people realize how important it is. You have a real a lot of races that can be, have a, a huge impact. Right here in Virginia, where I live, um, I had a choice between Abigail Spenberger and Leslie Vega. You know, it was, do I want to shoot myself in the foot or the, the kneecap was right. the option I had there. Um, but, you know, ultimately I had to choose Abigail. I hate her stance with the police. She wants to fund the police more. I hate it but Yesley Vega wants to take your human rights away. This is the choice I'm being made, right? Do I want to fund the police or, or end the rights of women and, and trans people? And so in Herschel Walker, you know, that whole race, it's so important. So get involved. If, you, if you're if you a white person that gets it, put power to your privilege, educate yourself, find people that'll help you get educated. I'm My door's open, I'll help you get educated. Get involved in your community. Don't let your 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 white coworkers, your white family, your white pastor, anybody um, slide anymore. Call it at face value. That confrontation is healthy. That's my message. I hope more white people join me on, on my journey. And we gotta take. We have to take our country back from white supremacists. It hasn't happened from the founding of this country, and I don't want my children to inherit this fight. Let's end it with my generation.
1: A fantastic note on which to end this conversation. Russell, you're amazing. Thank you so much for joining me. And thank you for sharing with the Let's Give a Damn community. And I hope we can do this again. Uh, Really, really love your work. I think it was a great conversation. Be happy to do it again. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Dear friends, thank you so much for showing up and for spending some time with Russell and me this week. To find links for everything mentioned in today's conversation and to keep up with all things Let's Give a Damn, visit letsgiveadam.com. Please share this episode with a friend. Please leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and please show up next week. We have many more incredible conversations coming your way. Chad Snavely, Jess Collins-Harn, and the incredible team at Sound On Studios made this episode. The music is by our friend Propaganda. You can reach out to me anytime and for any reason at hello at let's give a I love you all. Be safe. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now.